Good morning. Our scripture text is taken from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. This is found in your Pew Bible on page 824. <clears throat> then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, it is our uh, it's our security and our joy in this moment that what you said about the little children is true about everyone else as well. It is your, your will that any and all would come to you. And just as you warned the disciples not to do anything that would stand in the way of the little children being brought to you, so now I feel the seriousness of not impeding or hindering anyone's coming to you. And if you leave me to myself, that is exactly what I will do. So I, I am glad and I rest in your assurance that you will not leave me to myself. And you will not leave any of us to ourselves. And we do pray that in uh, these minutes that we are thinking together and worshiping you over your word, that what you would be doing by the power of your spirit and according to the riches of your grace is that you would be drawing every single person here to yourself. For my brothers and sisters in Christ already, that you would draw us near to yourself to sanctify us and to bring our hearts into sync with yours. And for those not yet in you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself for salvation on this day. And we pray in your name. Amen. Um, friends, abortion at its most fundamental level is not a constitutional issue. It's not a judicial issue. It's not a political issue. It is all those things, but not in its most ultimate sense. Uh, it is an issue of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And unless and until we see and understand abortion as an offense against the crown of Jesus Christ that can only be cured by the cross of Jesus Christ, then unless and until we get to that point, we will never really understand what abortion is. And so that's why the church needs to listen to what God's word says about this important issue in our culture. It's not enough to listen to what the Republican Party has to say or what our preferred uh, news commentators want to say, because they don't go deep enough. They are not exalting the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which is what the ultimate frame of reference for understanding abortion, both as an issue and as what, how do you get healed, all of it comes 
uh, from the Lordship of Christ. And so at the very outset this morning, I want to declare two things to you that are implications of the Lordship of Christ, because I know in this, in this assembly, it is very likely that there are people who have a history of some involvement at some level with abortion. And so I want to, and, and there are people who, who wonder about this issue. And so I want, to, I want to make two things very clear before we get any further in the message. And the first is this, and these are both implications that I intend to draw out more as we get further into the message. But the first implication, these are implications of Christ's lordship. And the first one is abortion is very great wickedness. There's no ambiguity about that. And the second is this, that in his gospel, Jesus Christ makes a promise based on his work of great blessedness that can be received to any and all who turn to him in repentance and faith because the power of his uh, willing substitutionary death is greater over both the individual's conscience and the eternal consequences of abortion. That the death of Christ, his willing self-giving, is more powerful than the intentional murder of the unborn image bearers of God. And so there's great gravity and great promise That's what it means to stand always at the foot of the cross, isn't it? And so this morning, um, I want to say to the person who is lighthearted about this issue that you need to feel the weight of the cross and the implication of Christ's lordship over this issue, and to the person who is burdened and feels inescapably stained and tainted and burdened Uh, by this sin, there is more power over your conscience in the cross of Christ than any sin that you commit. That's what it means to believe the gospel. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And that's not unique to abortion. So this morning what I want to do is I want with you to think about three dimensions of Christ's lordship from our passage as it relates specifically to the issue of abortion. And so I want to look at these three themes, that Jesus Christ is the Lord over children, that Jesus Christ is the Lord over abortion, and that Jesus Christ is the Lord who is our only hope. So let's consider the first one, Jesus Christ is the Lord over children. Because in order to understand what Jesus Christ thinks and feels about abortion, we first have to understand what he thinks and feels about children, and especially little children. You notice how the passage emphasizes that little children are being brought to him. In Luke's parallel account of this same incident, Luke uses the word for infants, And notice that even in Matthew's account, Matthew is emphasizing that the children were brought to Jesus. In other words, they're being carried. They're too small to walk on their own. And something absolutely amazing happens in this exchange. It's only three verses. And it's a very quick exchange But what Jesus does is he gives us a heaven's eye view of children. And he does that 
uh, in two dimensions, really. For, and notice, he's teaching adults about the worth of children. That's what's happening in this passage. And he, and, and, he, and he does it from two perspectives, two things about children. First, their worth to him, and secondly, his worth to them. First, their worth to him. He is the Lord of children. You notice how, uh, how strongly Jesus wants the little children to come to him? Do you notice how he intervenes with the disciples very dramatically? how he wants to remove and emphasizes that there should be no barriers to the approach of these little children to him, how, how immediately he, he intervenes to correct his disciples' uh, misunderstanding of him and his heart. And he does it twice. He does it positively and he does it negatively. Look at verse 14. Let the little children come to me, positive, and do not hinder them, negative, And what he's doing is he's saying, listen, disciples, my heart is wide open to these little children. I want no barriers between me and them. And the disciples, think about it, this is is amazing. Jesus is addressing two groups of adults. The parents who bring the children, or their guardians, maybe grandparents, but the, the people who bring the children, the relatives of the children, and his disciples. Now, as between the two groups of adults whom Jesus is addressing. It's the disciples who ought to have the clearer and deeper understanding of Jesus' heart than the parents. They've been with Jesus longer. They've seen what he's done. They've listened to his teaching. They've been exposed to him. They're committed to him. I want you to see that these are people who are already committed to Jesus, who've already left all that they have in order to follow Jesus, and they don't understand how he thinks about children. In fact, it ought to be the other way around, right? It ought to be the disciples of Jesus Christ who are going and pursuing the parents and saying, hey, this Jesus who we know and we've seen him perform miracles. We've seen him raise children from the dead. You need to bring your children to Jesus. It should be that way. But that's not what's happening. And you notice, it's not just one or two disciples who get it wrong. Matthew makes it very clear, it's all the disciples. Verse 13. And what did the disciples do? The disciples, plural, rebuked the people. Rebuke the people. That's a very strong word. Do you know the last time in uh, Matthew's gospel that we saw a disciple rebuke somebody? The same word? It was when Peter took Jesus aside in chapter 16, verse 22, to rebuke him for claiming that his cross was, he was going to have to suffer and die, that that's what it meant to be the Messiah. And I think we're supposed to feel a certain irony here. I think Matthew wants us to feel that just as Peter, Peter could not have been more wrong, right, in chapter 16 when he rebuked Jesus. He he didn't understand the very center of the kingdom of heaven. And I think that Matthew means for us to feel a connection here, that that the disciples as a whole are just as wrong here when they presume to rebuke the parents who are bringing the children and saying, by implication, you know what, Jesus is way too busy, and your kids are not important enough. They do not deserve his attention. 
that just as uh, Peter was 180 degrees wrong about the nature of Jesus' messiahship and what it meant for him to be the king of the kingdom when he talked about his cross, so too they're just as wrong now. And notice how Jesus resolves this conflict, this dispute between the parents and the disciples. He doesn't do it by taking the parents' side. What he does is he takes the side of the children. And he, not only are the disciples wrong, but even the parents don't really understand the full strength of how he feels about children. Listen, if all he had wanted to do was to side with the parents, then all he had to do was say, hey, my disciples, get out of the way. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, period. That's all he would have had to say. But you notice he goes much farther than that. He goes farther than the parents wanted him to go. He goes farther than the farthest reaches of the highest hope that the parents cherish for their children. They wanted Jesus to touch their children and to pray for them because they knew that God was with him. But Jesus exceeds, obviously, by far, his disciples' understanding of them, but even the parents' fondest hopes for their children because what he declares is, the reason you should let them come to me and the reason you should not get in their way is because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He just escalated the stakes. So what Jesus is doing is he is correcting both groups of adults and he's instructing both groups of adults. And it's very staggering what he's saying because he's saying, notice, he is saying that these little children who have no resume who have no accomplishments, who have no power, who have nothing to, there's nothing useful about them. All they have, the only thing that they present, they have to be carried. They're not even ambulatory. They have nothing to commend them. All they are is just a big, living, breathing, diaper-wetting, have-to-be-fed bundle of need, totally dependent need. And Jesus says about them that they have a present interest in the kingdom of heaven. Not a potential future springing executory interest in the kingdom of heaven, provided they do X, Y, and Z, and achieve A, B, and C, and keep their noses clean. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven, which is as big an idea as you could possibly have, presently belongs to them. And they don't even know it. Now that's amazing to me. It's, by definition, apart from their ability. By definition, it's an illustration. It's not not an illustration. By definition, it's apart from their accomplishments. They've got nothing on their resume, just the name. And then, under education, need. Under professional experience, need. 
Under personal interest, need. Under references, need. See, Jesus has a totally different view of people, doesn't he? Of personhood. It's very common to look at this exchange and to say, well, he's using the kids as an illustration. He says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. What he really means is the same thing that he meant in chapter 18 when he was talking about his disciples. That won't work, friends, when he was telling his disciples to become like little children. He pulls the the child in there. That's a totally different setting. Jesus Christ never uses anybody as a prop or an illustration. So he's declaring something so big, and I want you to think about how this bears on the issue of abortion, because it does. Think about this. If Jesus is declaring that the kingdom of heaven, which is the greatest thing of all, if he's declaring that the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children, then by by definition, that belonging is apart from merit, apart from ability, and apart from accomplishment, then if, if that's true, then, then doesn't it also stand to reason that he would believe and affirm and assert that life belongs to them apart from their merit, apart from their ability, apart from their accomplishment? Of course he would. And friends, you know that viability However, that's defined. That's the hinge of Roe versus Wade and its progeny. Viability. That the fetus, the child, has no constitutional right to life until it gets past the point of viability, of man's or a woman's evaluation of viability. Do you know viability is just another word for merit. Fetal viability is just another word for fetal merit. And Jesus, what he says about these little children, leaves no room for that kind of analysis. Because the kingdom of heaven, not will belong, not might belong, but belongs to these little children. They are worth a great deal to him, but they are also, secondly, um, important. And he demonstrates his his lordship over them because of his worth to them. Do you notice there's something else that Jesus does here that's very uh, radical, and, and he's teaching us about his worth to children. If you look again at verse 14 with me, notice he says, let the little children come to me. Okay, that's the first half. And do not hinder them. Okay? So me. They need to come to me. Get out of their way from coming to me. Why, Jesus? For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, wait a second. Look at how the two halves of that sentence relate. They are an equivalency. It's an equation. Coming to him equals coming to the kingdom of heaven. That's the same thing. That's what he's declaring. So he's not just the representative of the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that he is the literal and personal embodiment of the kingdom of heaven because he is the king of heaven. 
Now, do you notice what the implication of that would be about his worth to children? He's saying that if a child is ever going to relate to God, is ever going to be a member of God's kingdom, he must come, she must come, and must be brought through Jesus Christ because he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. This is a massive assertion of his authority over children. He is claiming his absolute rights over children and the adult generation entrusted with their, en- their instruction and their protection. They are required. He is teaching the adults, both his disciples and the parents. He is teaching them about the worth of children. He is elevating their understanding of children. He's saying, it's not just a sentimental thing that shows that Jesus is compassionate. No, he says, get out of their way and let them come to me. You're right to bring them, but the reason you're right to bring them is way bigger than you imagine. He's saying, you've got to teach kids that. And disciples, you need to teach people that because I'm the ultimate authority for children. I'm the one to whom they must come to enter the kingdom. And therefore, you, the adults, into whose care they've been entrusted, are obligated to me to both instruct them and to protect them. And friends, when I put these two points together, uh, children's worth to Jesus and uh, his worth to them, uh, when, when I think about those two points, um, I, I think they are profound declarations of Jesus' interest or his investment in the welfare of little children that stands as a very dramatic testimony over against what's happening in abortion. Because what's happening in abortion is, is an assault by men and women against a class of person about whom Jesus feels deeply and thinks very highly and to whom, for whom, Jesus stands as Lord, the personal embodiment of the kingdom of heaven. And so at its most fundamental level, abortion is an assault against the lordship of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus is the Lord over abortion. Jesus' lordship over abortion is a deduction from and an implication of his lordship over children. Because they, what he's saying in verses 13 through 15 is that they those children are more fundamentally his than they, than they are the parents. And even than they are their own. This is not a precious moment's moment. This is the king of the universe saying... I am the Lord and giver of life. I am the king. 
What we name something matters. Well, let me back up. If he's the king over these children, then that means that he is the primary and ultimate offended party in every abortion. Even the child's claim is under his lordship. And this is very much like what you see uh, David say in Psalm 51 after he is, he's confessing his sins to the Lord in the wake of his uh, sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. And he says in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. Because Bathsheba was an image bearer of God. Uriah was an image bearer of God. Joab, the general who was, who was pressured into conspiring uh, and being an accomplice with David in the murder of Uriah. They're all image bearers of God. So when David is sinning against uh, these image bearers of God, what he's really doing is assaulting the image of God. The same thing is true in abortion. So when we think about what we call abortion, uh, the name matters. Abortion isn't, think about the way, the way this is referred to in the media. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a constitutional right. It's not even a right to choose or a right to life. That's inadequate, you see? Even the rhetoric for the side that we like is inadequate. Right to life? Does that do justice to the claims of Jesus Christ over the children? Well, I understand it's meant well, and, it, and it's true within a certain frame of reference. The frame of reference isn't big enough, though. Abortion is not a Supreme Court precedent. It's not a woman's fundamental right to choose. That's the one that I've been hearing a lot recently. It's not the law of the land. It's not about reproductive uh, freedom. It's not a wedge issue or a plank in a party platform. Every abortion boils down to this. Let's just be honest about what is actually happening. The smallest, weakest, and most vulnerable and most defenseless are slaughtered by the strong. who use their strength for self-preservation at the cost of the weak's destruction. That's what abortion is. And so the ruling generation of adults lives like a parasite off the rising generation and treats the rising generation as if it was their property. It says, we can use you for whatever we want. We grew you. We can use you for what we want. But we've already seen from verse 14 that Jesus is saying, you know what, there's one owner of every generation, it's me. See, in abortion, what's happening is men are exercising, presuming to exercise life and death sovereignty contrary to Jesus' absolute rights of ownership over all generations. And the Bible has two names for that. The first is murder. And the second is the worst kind of murder, child sacrifice. Abortion is murder. Uh, And there are so many strands and lines of biblical argument that establish that point. We don't have time to go over them all this morning. But I want to focus in with you on one issue, just one issue that makes this unmistakable. And that is the full personhood of the unborn. Because once you establish, and I think that's the most important, once you establish 
the full personhood of the unborn, then, of course, bringing that life to an end intentionally and in a premeditated way, there's no other word for it except murder. So let's look first at Psalm 139. It's a familiar text, but I want you to, I want you to be careful because, you, you know, we might be right on the issue morally. We might be on the right side of uh, uh, abortion in terms of declaring it wrong and offensive to God, but are, are our reasons for believing that God's reasons? So that's why it's important to look at what Scripture says. Look at Psalm 139, verse 13. Now notice, this is David uh, speaking. It says, for you, addressing God, for you formed my inward parts. I want you to pay attention to the pronouns here, okay? You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You know, you see what David's doing? David is obviously writing Psalm 139 as an adult, and he is reflecting back. uh, This is essentially his uh, spiritual autobiography. He is reflecting back on when his spiritual autobiography began, when God began it. And you notice that he describes himself in the womb as the same David who now is living outside the womb, the same me who is writing the psalm, is the same me who was being knit together in his mother's womb. Verse 13, the same I who is the psalmist was being made in secret in his mother's womb. So there is, in terms of personhood, there is no distinction for David between his personhood in the womb and his personhood in adulthood. They're the same. And that's not unique to Psalm 139. Paul, in the New Testament, makes exactly the same point. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. And friends, if you're sitting next to somebody who doesn't have a Bible or they're not not comfortable, uh, looks like navigating their way through the Bible, please help them find Galatians chapter 1. Remember, guys eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, okay? That's how you can remember that. Now, Paul is giving his testimony in Galatians chapter 1. And this is such a clear biblical point that Paul doesn't even have to put put a marker down and say, "Now, now notice what I'm doing here. It's just the natural flow. This is the biblical mindset, the biblical understanding of personhood. Paul's explaining uh, his testimony. And notice, when you get to verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. The ESV says before I was born, but literally, literally, it's from my mother's womb. Now, you notice what Paul is doing there. He's doing exactly the same thing that David did in Psalm 139. In other words, the Paul who is writing Galatians, in terms of personhood, the Paul who's writing Galatians sees absolutely no distinction 
in terms of his personhood or identity between his life outside the womb and away from his mother and the Paul who he was, the Saul who he was, inside the womb, sustained by his mother. And it's just, it's just of course, that's the way you think about it, according to him. And so what that means, what that means, friends, is that when the life of the unborn is ended intentionally, it is murder. Because you're murdering a person. But abortion is not just murder, it's the worst kind of murder. It's child sacrifice. Abortion is the intentional, premeditated murder of the weakest and most vulnerable category of person whom God, not impersonal chemical or biological or molecular forces, whom God is personally fashioning in the womb. Notice, did you notice in Psalm 139, David speaks about God knitting him and weaving him together. In other words, he, he doesn't just create the laws by, of gestation by which a human being is conceived and then develops in the womb. No, David has a very clear sense because he knows who God is, that he's not just this distant watchmaker, but he is present, he is immanent in all of his transcendence, and he, the eternal God, is knitting and weaving together thread by thread, molecule by molecule. That's what David would have said, I'm sure, if he'd known what they were in the womb. The finest detail that David could get down to describing, he's saying God's involved. And what abortion is, is taking that one and killing it in a premeditated way. And the reason that abortion is not just murder, but it's child sacrifice, is because child sacrifice is when the strongest live and protect themselves through the institutionalized, culturally approved murder of the weakest. And that's exactly what abortion is. The children are sacrificed on the parent's altar so that the parents, through the death of the child, are freed from either reproach or responsibility, or both. That's child sacrifice. That's what the Old Testament calls it. Now, you know, child sacrifice was widespread in the cultures that surrounded Israel. Wide, widespread. In fact, every other culture around Israel practiced child sacrifice. And so the Mosaic law repeatedly contains prohibitions against it. And God says, don't do that because I'm not like those pagan gods. And one of the measures of Israel's decline across the Old Testament is to see ways in which child sacrifice began to work its way from the fringes of Israelite culture into the very monarchy. And if you read 1 Kings chapter 8, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 11, one of the very sad implications of a Solomon's uh, going astray after many wives. He married many foreign wives, di- disobeying the very clear instructions of uh, God's law. And what, what the writer of, of Kings does is he documents 
how Solomon was involved in building for some of his foreign wives sanctuaries and altars uh, that were dedicated to the very pagan gods who required child sacrifice. And so the implication is that Solomon, at a minimum, this is David's son, was enabling child sacrifice. But it gets even worse because the longest serving king in Judah, Manasseh, who served for 55 years, he actually, and we'll see it in a minute, the chronicler reports that Manasseh actually, the king, this is the one actually sitting on the throne, sacrificed his own sons. Friends, I am very grateful to God that I live in the United States, that I was born in the United States. I'm very grateful for that. I cannot calculate all the privileges and all the blessings that have flowed into my life and that I enjoy today because in God's providence, I am a citizen of the United States of America. But friends, I don't worship the United States of America. And neither should you. And one of the things that it means to be a Christian is that we let God evaluate our culture. And we submit to his evaluation of our culture and our heritage. We don't submit to our culture's evaluation of itself. And so we have to be very careful that we do not romanticize our culture or romanticize our heritage or our institutions. A conservative estimate of the number of unborn children who have been murdered since Roe versus Wade is about 50 million. Now, to give you some perspective, there are probably about 17 million people who live in the state of Florida. And 35 million, about 35 million, live in California. And the Nazis in the Holocaust murdered nine million, about 9 million Jews. Fifty million under the banner of freedom. Fifty million. You know, when I read uh, World War II history and I uh, read about the German population, how they put up with the Nazis, how did they, how did they let them get away with the final solution? How did they, how'd they tolerate that? You know what I have to do? So I have to look at myself. Something far worse has been going on for the last 40 years in this country. It's been going on a lot longer. And you know what? It, it does it in the name of freedom. I like to think of myself as superior to the Canaanites and to the cannibals and to the Nazis, but the point of, uh, but, but, but I think I shouldn't, right? Because our culture, the culture of which I'm a member, has produced more deaths of the innocent and has done so with a state-sanctioned, judiciary-sanctioned, constitutionally-sanctioned authority. I have, I have been privileged to be in the Supreme Court four times while it was in session. And I, I, every time I went, I was so impressed by how seriously the court took itself. Oh, my goodness. Uh, from the line outside on the plaza, how the guards would come. The Supreme Court has its own police force, and they, they will not let you sit down on the plaza, even if you get there like I did at 5.45 in the morning. You have to stand. 
and you wait there for three and a half hours and you finally get in and I have never been through security like I've been through security at the Supreme Court. And you go through two levels of it. And then you go into the, the chambers, the courtroom, cha- the courtroom itself, and you sit in the gallery and they seat you very carefully. And every four or five feet, there are guards who s- stand with their back uh, to, the just, to the bench and they're looking at you. And they want you to take the court seriously. You have to sit up straight You can't slouch. They tell you that. The guy in front of me, the first time I went, was starting to doze off. And a guard came up, and I could hear him say, you are not allowed to sleep in the Supreme Court. And in the room, those of you who have been there, you know, it feels like a temple. And there's this stone relief work that goes all the way around the top of the court, high above the bench. And over the court, directly over the court, uh, I believe it's to the right, is um, some sculpture of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. And every time I've sat there and I've observed and listened to the court, I've thought about how in that very room in 1973, in hushed tones and with flawless grammar, a bare majority of justices, some of whom were appointed by Republican presidents, declared that the Constitution we're taught to revere contained and conferred the right to cannibalize the unborn. And when I've remembered that, I've been reminded that our culture, me personally, all of us, and and the unborn and those who are involved with abortion, we need a greater hope than a hope that can come from within. Because if you and I are looking to our system as our ultimate hope, friends, we are looking in the wrong place. Our ultimate hope is in the lordship of Jesus Christ in the same way that he is lord over children, in the same way that he is lord over abortion. He is our hope. And there are two aspects of his his lordship that give us hope. The first is his power. So we're now in the third point in our outline this morning. Jesus Christ is the Lord who is our hope. The first aspect of his lordship that gives us hope is power, his power. There is always hope for the unborn and for those who've been involved in abortion because Jesus Christ is the Lord who wields ultimate power in the world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Everything, Ephesians 1, has been put in subjection by the Father under his feet. He's above every authority. Right? So our hope for the unborn, our hope for the healing of those who've been involved with abortion and whose consciences are burdened is higher, stronger, and more enduring than our Constitution, more enduring than our institutions, more enduring and sturdier than the results of our elections and than our leaders because it rests that hope on Jesus Christ. In God's providence, we live in a society where it is still possible to be involved in politics locally and nationally, where it is still possible for us to be part of the process of influencing change. We have that opportunity, and therefore, we have that responsibility. 
we have been given the opportunity to, be, to open our mouths to God as advocates and also to men and women as advocates and to be involved in concrete ministries like Grace House Pregnancy Center and going down and ministering at the abortion clinics. But our ultimate confidence is not in our system or in our leaders, but in the lordship of Jesus Christ over our system and in his power to work through them for his glory. So I want you to think rightly about involvement politically and socially, but I want you also to think about the hope that is ours because of the healing that Jesus Christ alone can offer. There is always hope, not just because of the power of Jesus, but because he's the ultimate healer of the worst of sinners. And that's what we celebrate. You know, at the foot of the cross, there is hope for anyone. There is healing for anyone. No one is excluded. And so I want to I show you that uh, from the experience of two, uh, two Old Testament figures who are both child sacrifices. And so the, the people I'm thinking particularly of at this point in the sermon is I'm thinking of folks particularly who, fee, who see themselves as indelibly stained and who feel themselves inescapably haunted because they've either been directly or indirectly involved in an abortion or multiple abortions, either in providing it, performing it, pursuing it, approving one of them, having an abortion, insisting on one, or looking the other way when one was done. There's real power for healing for you. And the lives of both Manasseh and Jephthah prove that to us. So let's look first at Manasseh. If you want to look with me at 2 Chronicles 33. Manasseh, as I said before, was the longest reigning king in Judah, and he was a wicked man. He was the most wicked king in Judah and the longest. That just goes to show you. It just goes to show you that you can't measure the goodness of a king by how long his reign was. And Manasseh, the chronicler reports in verse 6, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 6, look at this. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, that's a wicked guy. Burned his sons. And so you think, well, what God needs to do is completely wipe that guy off the face of the earth. But you notice, it's not what happens. I'll let you read the full story this afternoon. But look at verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. It's getting worse. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. That's much less than he deserves, right? But notice what happens in verse 12. This is very unexpected and certainly undeserved. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God, 
and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Of course, because now he, now he got captured. So don't you think that God is going to see right through that and say, forget it, you had your chance? God's ways are not like our ways. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. What? God shows mercy to a child sacrificer? Yes. But he does more than that, my friends. Jephthah, much more than that. I mean, if all the gospel was, was the good news of God's mercy toward great sinners, that would not be good enough. That is less than the gospel. Because the gospel is about more than mercy from God. The gospel is ultimately the good news that on the basis of the work of Christ, not only are sinners shown, even the worst of sinners, shown great mercy from God, but they are given the approval of God through Jesus Christ. And that's what Jephthah shows us. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. Now Jephthah, Jephthah was a judge, and he's a notorious judge because he sacrificed his own daughter to fulfill a vow that he had made to the Lord before he went into battle, saying, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will sacrifice to you the first, or whoever, the, the pronoun's ambiguous, but he clearly had to know it would be a person, whoever first comes out of my house to greet me when I return. He had to know it was going to be a person. And who else would be in his house besides his wife or his daughter? And when he comes back from victory, it's his daughter who comes out of the house. He should never have made that vow. And the book of Judges is very critical of Jephthah for making that vow. It's even more critical of Jephthah for keeping it. Because he did sacrifice his daughter. And he was a wicked man in that sense. That's insanity. Right? That doesn't bring honor to God. That's not a vow that God ever wanted him to make. And it's not a vow that God would ever want him to keep. Because it's against God's will. And yet, when you read Hebrews 11, which is the hall of faith, look at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, etc. What is Jephthah doing in Hebrews 11? That's absolutely stunning. This is the Jephthah who sacrificed his daughter. This is the man who is, that, that child sacrifice is numbered. Now notice this, he is numbered by the Holy Spirit as being 
as belonging in the same company as Samuel, as David, as the prophets, that he, this Jephthah, who sacrificed his own daughter contrary to the commands of God, he is numbered among those who, according to verse 2, have obtained the commendation of God. And according to verse 6, who by their faith have pleased God. And according to verse 1 in chapter 12, who are members of the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds the church and is even around us today, and that the writer to the Hebrews appeals to and says, hey, since we today are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, referring to everybody listed in Hebrews 11, let us run the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jephthah is in that company. Now, your theology needs to be able to account for that. Do you know, Hebrews 12.1 is is often misunderstood. You know, so often people will say, well, that cloud of witnesses, you know what that that image is? It's like we're we're running the marathon and we're we're on the last lap and, you know, we've come into the Olympic Stadium and the stadium seats are all filled with the saints of the past ages and they're watching us, so we need to keep running that race and get across the finish line because, you know, David's watching you and Abraham's watching you. Friends, that's not what that is main. Uh, that's not what that's saying at all. They're not witnesses of us. They're witnesses who are testifying to us of Jesus Christ. They're witnesses of him to us. They have their eyes fixed on Jesus just like we do. And you know what Jephthah's saying? You know what Jephthah's saying to you? He's saying, hi, I'm a child sacrificer. But Jesus Christ has obtained for me the commendation of God because he was willing to live as an unborn. And he was willing to live as a man who was perfectly obedient to the law of God. And he was willing from all eternity to keep a vow that he made to his father to rescue sinners by delivering himself up in their place, by sacrificing himself. We, I, Jephthah, a child sacrificer, received the commendation of God for all eternity because Jesus was willing in my place to receive the condemnation of God that I had earned and which he received in his body on the tree of his cross in my place. That's what Jephthah is saying. He's saying it is possible to be guilty of great wickedness and yet because of Jesus Christ obtain from God not simply mercy but his commendation. Jephthah is saying, I am a witness of the worth of Jesus Christ to you. I am a witness of the worth of his life and his death to obtain pardon for the worst and darkest sins. I am a witness of the worth of Jesus Christ to obtain for you cleansing, not just on the outside, but your very conscience. I'm a witness that what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, that that's true. I'm a witness of that. Hear me, Jephthah says. Jephthah says, I'm a witness of the power of the blood of Christ, his willing sacrifice. 
in my place and in the place of any who will come to him. For that sacrifice to cleanse not just the outside of your life and not just a part of your life, but your whole person to cleanse, to sprinkle your heart clean from an evil conscience, the power of his death can lift the burden of the worst deed that you have committed. Can actually cleanse your conscience. And Jephthah says, not only am I a witness of the worth of Jesus Christ, but I am a witness to everyone who will hear of the willingness of Jesus Christ to receive any one with any history who is willing to come to him in repentance and to exchange by faith their history no matter how dark no matter how long lasting even if it's a manasseh length 55 years anyone who is willing to come and in sincerity bring their history in repentance and by faith exchange it for jesus christ's He is willing to do that. And this is the greatness of Jesus Christ, my friends. This is the greatness of Jesus Christ. We test the greatness of Jesus Christ when we face an issue as dark as abortion. We face it, we stare at it in the eye, and we say, is the cross big enough for that? Is his sacrifice worth that much? Is he that willing? And Jephthah proves yes. So that today, Jesus Christ says over each one of us, not merely let the little children come to me, but let the sacrificers, let the sacrificers of the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Because on the basis of my work and the power of my willingness, even to such can belong the kingdom of heaven. May it ever be so. Amen. Let's pray. Hallow your name, O Lord, and cause your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in your name. Amen.